There we go. Uh, good morning. We are honored to have with us uh, this morning uh, as our guest preacher, uh, Dr. Michael J. Gorman. Uh, now, some of you were, will remember last week we had uh, Dr. Marvin Wilson here. Uh, so there's a little bit of, of genealogy in that uh, Marv was uh, Mike's Old Testament professor when he was in college at Gordon back in the 90s. And um, I uh, had the privilege of being Mike's student uh, when I did a second master's at St. Mary's. So that just goes to show you that greatness is only communicable so far. Uh, but uh, uh, Mike is uh, finishing up his, uh, in fact, has just, uh, I guess, technically just stepped down from his position as dean of the Ecumenical Institute at St. Mary's, one of the ministries New Hope supports. Uh, and he is moving into the uh, Raymond E. Brown chair of, uh, sorry, Biblical Studies and Theology, is that what they're calling it, uh, at St. Mary's. That, this is, incidentally, the uh, Raymond E. Brown, the great uh, New Testament scholar, uh, not Ray Brown, the jazz legend on the cover of your bulletin. Uh, but we are honored to have uh, Dr. Gorman with us, uh, especially as uh, we are here in Romans, and uh, the Apostle Paul is his field especially. So please give him a warm welcome. As some of you may know, at, at the Ecumenical Institute, we recently hosted the great biblical scholar N.T. Wright. I think a few of you may have been there. And um, in any event, at 10 minutes to 1, he was set to go on at 1 o'clock. The audio feed to the overflow room died. So this is a minor inconvenience. And I, w- I wish I were George Whitfield. He was the great British preacher who preached to thousands and didn't need a microphone, but for posterity, my guess is you want, is this good enough? That's good enough? All right. We're good. I'm fine like this if you're all right. Yeah. In any event, uh, technical difficulties now solved. Let's uh, pause for a moment and invoke the Lord's blessing. Good and gracious God, we do thank you for the gift of this church and this community, 
for this morning to sing your praises and to hear your word. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts upon these texts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I would like to read uh, a short passage from Genesis chapter 15 and then our passage for the day from Romans chapter 4. Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring. And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then from Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. Hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the, quote, father of many nations, according to what was said. So numerous shall your descendants be, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. You've been thinking through Romans with Paul bit by bit, which is both admirable and daunting. I remember doing it a little bit more quickly with Jason when he was in the program that he mentioned some years ago. By the way, I should correct, I was not Marv's student in the 90s, or even in the 80s. Unfortunately, it was the 70s. But I date both him and me. Paul himself, after all these years, might say, as he's probably wanted to say to his commentators over the centuries, come on, folks, give me a break. I really never intended you to go syllable by syllable through this book. I had a big message, a big picture in mind. I had no idea you were going to take apart every single iota of the text. But now that you're doing it, week by week, year by year, however, um, do cut me a little slack. In spite of, I think, Paul's concern about the way we do tend to pick this letter apart, it is obviously a very important letter. 
I've just completed a very small little commentary on the book of Romans, and the first sentence in my introduction says, Romans is unquestionably the most influential piece of writing in Christian history. Second sentence says, it is arguably the most influential letter in the history of the world. Very important document. Despite many centuries of interpreting Romans, however, few of us, I think, really know what it's all about. There are many themes in this letter, many important themes that have been proposed as the theme of Romans. Justification by faith, many people would say, or the good news for both Jews and Gentiles, or the righteousness of God, and there are others. All of these are important, and I confess that I myself on some occasions have proposed a kind of one-theme-fits-all perspective on the book of Romans. A friend and fellow New Testament professor even has a book called Unlocking Romans. Sounds both promising and perhaps a bit cocky, doesn't it? That one person could unlock it all after all these years. Our passage this morning both confirms the significance of the question, what is the central focus of Romans, and contributes a little bit to the confusion. What is this text about? Or more specifically, who is this text about? Everyone who knows Romans knows that chapter 4 is about Abraham, right? Well, his name appears in print seven times in the chapter. In our passage, he is referred to with pronouns like he, his, and him a dozen times. The verbs in the passage seem to focus on him. He hoped against hope. He believed. By the way, I read from the NRSV. If you were following in the NIV, it's a little different, but not significantly. He would become the father of many nations. He did not weaken in faith. He considered his own body. He considered the body of his wife, Sarah. He grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God. He was fully convinced, etc. It sounds like it's all about Abraham. God's response to all of this also seems to confirm the notion that it's all about Abraham. Verse 22, the climax of the passage, the last verse I read, therefore his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. His faith to him, righteousness. It's hard not to conclude that this text is about Abraham, and specifically about Abraham as an example of faith in the most profound sense of the word. Unwavering trust, hope against hope, conviction about things unseen, and so on. The perfect example, the one to which and to whom we will never probably attain. All of this about Abraham is true at one level, and I'll come back to that later. But right now I want to suggest that at another profound level, it misses the point. Romans, in our passage, is first of all about God, not about Abraham, or about us. It is about God. The whole book of Romans is about God from beginning to end. Even in that climactic verse, verse 22, therefore his faith 
to him righteousness. The key is in the passive voice. Was reckoned to him. That is, God did the reckoning. A friend of mine, Richard Hayes, is the dean of Duke Divinity School and perhaps the most respected New Testament scholar in the U.S. and one of the most respected in the world. He teaches a New Testament interpretation course, a basic introduction to the New Testament. And out of the starting gate, the first thing he says on the first day of class in the opening lecture of his paragraph is this. He says to his students, tape a sign on the mirror of your bathroom so you will see it every morning and every evening. The sign should say, it's about God, stupid As harsh and maybe a little offensive as that sounds, it's intended to make a point and to get his students' attention and ours. The New Testament is, surprise, surprise, about God. And yet, surprisingly and truly, there are very few people who sit down and read the New Testament to learn about God. We always want to learn about us or about Abraham, or even about Jesus, all of which is legitimate, but sometimes God can be left out of the picture. So we come back to the text to ask the question, what do we learn about God in this passage before we learn something about Abraham? And as often the case, the context will help us, I think, enormously. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul tells us, and I'm sure Marv Wilson spoke eloquently about this last week, that we learn at least three things about God. First of all, that God is the one who makes and keeps promises, especially the the promise that Abraham would, through his descendants, have children forever and live forever. We also learn that God is the one who gives life to the dead. And we learn that God is the one who speaks things into existence, who makes something out of nothing. Last night, by the way, coincidentally, Nancy and I were watching the Discovery Channel and a special about Stephen Hawking. Did anybody happen to see that? Stephen Hawking, the great Cambridge physicist. And the the point of the show was uh, to interview Hawking and work through his argument that God does not need to exist for there to be creation at all, even creation out of nothing. That time and the universe itself can create itself out of nothing. Frankly, I'm a bit skeptical about that, as much as I have a respect for Stephen Hawking as a great physicist. I'm much more comfortable with the words of Scripture, that it's God who brings something out of nothing. So this God, then, the creating, promise-making, resurrecting God, is the God of Abraham and the God of our passage and our God. But there's more or better, more of the same. In the verses after our passage for this morning, next week's sermon, or perhaps another week, 23 to 24, we learn that God is the one who handed over his own son and then raised him from the dead for our justification. In other words, God is the one who gives life to the dead in the present. Both the dead Jesus and dead people like you and me who were and perhaps are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is the God who calls out of nothing people into new life and into existence. 
just like he called Abraham and gave him life, and just as he raised Jesus from the dead and gave him life. So now you might be wondering, ten minutes into this little exposition, why I focused on last week and next week rather than this week in its passage. The answer is quite simple. For many people in our culture and even in our churches, words like faith and hope and trust can become empty buzzwords. Just hang on. Just have faith. Even the religious version, just trust the Lord. But I want, to re- I want us to remember that unless there's something, no, someone behind and in these circumstances who's trustworthy and faithful, someone who really can bring life out of death, who really can comfort us and resurrect us in our affliction, these words of trust and hope are just empty, vacuous. So with that said, we can finally turn to our text and to Abraham. The secondary, I would say, focus of Romans 4. So I want to highlight for us this morning four aspects of Abraham's faith that do represent themselves in this passage. The first is this. Abraham's faith was counterintuitive and counterindicated. Counterintuitive and counterindicated. That is, when we read this passage, it is irrational for Abraham to believe. His wife is barren. His body is, shall we say, as good as dead. We'll come back to that. The situation does not suggest that it's time for hope for children, is it? It was not a normal prescription for the diagnosis. It was, in medical language, counterindicated. The wrong prescription for the diagnosis. Counterintuitive, irrational. It was a faith in spite of the situation. The situation was hopeless. After all, his body was as good as dead, his wife's womb was as good as dead, and actually, the Greek text says, dead. Not as good as dead, which is what the NIV and the NRSV both say. It says Abraham's body was simply dead. I checked in a variety of translations. Only one got it right. It says already dead, the New American Bible. In spite of this, however, Abraham's faith is not blind faith. Blind faith is when you have irrational positive thoughts when reason says to give up. But biblical faith, Abrahamic faith, is when you remember that the God who has called you has a habit of coming through at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. In other words, it requires a memory, a scriptural memory or a communal memory. And that's why I really love the way you do the the prayer here. Because as you share your requests, especially difficult ones, there's a community that surrounds you to remind you that God has and can do something, has done something and can do something like bringing life out of death. It's this kind of faith, frankly, that has sustained me and my wife in our most difficult times. But probably or possibly like you, we tend to be slow learners. 
We forget more quickly than we remember, and we forget more often than we remember. So we do need one another, and Abraham needed the voice of God to remember that we can have this kind of God-centered hope in hopeless times, because frankly it does not come naturally. Second, Abraham's faith was in the promise of God. So it was indeed counterintuitive and counterindicated, but it was faith in the promise of God. Abraham had been told, as we read in Genesis, that he would be the father of many nations with numerous descendants. But so far he had none through his wife, and as we know, the prospects were not good. He would be shamed that his only heir would be through a slave. But Abraham's faith was not in faith. It was not in himself. If I could sing at this point, I would want to sing like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. Remember that? This dates me, again, to the 60s and 70s and not the 80s and 90s. Do you remember? I have confidence and confidence in lo- alone, besides which you see. Do you remember the rest? No, you don't. <laughs> I have confidence in me. Very good. That's not the faith of Abraham. Maybe the faith of Julie Andrews or the faith of someone whose life is looking up and rosy. This was not either what some people refer to as name it and claim it faith. don't know if you've heard of that. It's quite popular in certain circles. Name it and claim it faith goes like this. Find some promise in scripture, especially a promise about success or wealth or happiness. Hold it up to God and say very boldly, Here God, you said it, now do it. Name it, claim it. I don't think that's Abraham's faith either. Rather, Abraham knew that God had made a promise that was to him but for others. Having many descendants was not a personal promise, merely a personal promise to Abraham that his name would be great, but a missional promise from God that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed with the knowledge of God. So too for us, God's promise to each of us is not a bed of roses, a name it or claim it kind of mentality, that no matter the circumstances, instead, no matter the circumstances, God has a bigger plan going on for his world and for our role in it, and there will be, there must be a place for us in that. Whether we've been hurt, abandoned, betrayed, or simply confused by others or by life circumstances, God's promise is that we still have a place, a unique place, in his mission and in the world. And that, I think, helps us to interpret Romans chapter 8. that says, I'll quote it specifically, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that everything turns out rosy, but rather that all things work together, or better, I would translate, God works all things together for God's good purpose, 
for the good, which means also our good. We can believe that these circumstances that we find ourselves in are not the final word because God's mission is bigger than our circumstances. God works all things together for the good, for God's good purposes, and we have a part in that no matter what we're going through. And it's that promise that can make sense even out of suffering because God's mission goes on even in spite of the ongoing reality of suffering. Thirdly, more specifically as we look at this text, God's, sorry, Abraham's faith was oriented to the God who brings life out of death. I've already said this a number of times. Sometimes we hear about certain doctrines in the church that may or may not seem to have any relevance to daily life. But Paul here calls to mind two doctrines that have great relevance for our daily lives. Creation out of nothing and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, the most unique aspect of Abraham's God and our God is the uniquely divine desire and ability to create something out of nothing and even to bring death out of life. The God of Abraham, of Jesus, of Paul, is the one whose very mind, whose very being is oriented toward doing that which we humans cannot even imagine. Not even Stephen Hawking. When we want to give up, God wants to give life. When we want to give in, God wants to resurrect. This is true not only for the big purpose things like Abraham's descendants and the mission of God in the world, but for our daily lives, for those of us who walk by faith. Broken relationships, painful situations that seem beyond repair, spiritual lives that have become dormant, children who have strayed, churches that appear to be dead, denominations even that appear to be dead. In each of these hopeless situations, Abraham's children, and that includes us, can have hope. Not because we know everything is going to turn out fine like a bed of roses, but because we believe that God can bring life out of death. If he can bring back his son from the dead, he can do something in our situation. That is, in fact, I think, what justification is all about. That big word, that other doctrine, the elephant in the room, if you will, of this text. Justification, at least, is about God bringing life out of death. You may even be wondering, why has this sermon not said much about justification by faith, the doctrine it seems to be obviously about? I've held back because I don't think this passage is about justification per se, anything more than it's about God. I mean, it's about Abraham, it's about God. It's about a relationship, if we want to define justification that way. It's about resurrection, not about a doctrine, but about a reality. So if you and I want to be in a right relationship with God, either for the first time or on an ongoing basis, we need to admit that we too are in need of resurrection. Justification by faith is not a doctrine, it's a lived reality. Paul would want us to know that. Because Abraham was functionally dead, his wife's womb was as good as dead, 
His faith was that God could bring life out of his death, could transform his deadness into life. His faith was self-evolving and self-involving. He participated in the very, quote-unquote, doctrine he was describing. Justification means resurrection. Both Abraham and we have been granted the gracious gift of new life out of death. And now we get to celebrate that and relive it each day. Our resurrection, our new life, may come in more subtle forms, day by day as we live out the reality of God's bringing us from death to life. But nonetheless, it is real and at times it is palpable. Finally, fourthly, Abraham's faith was strengthened by worship. Verse 20, I would like to reread, says the following. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham's faith was strengthened by worship. Often, when we feel hopeless or spiritually discouraged, we turn away from God and from worship and from fellow Christians, from the church. The faith of Abraham does the opposite. It runs to worship, to giving glory to God. It's very Jewish. Abraham, the text implies, was able to see God more clearly, to remember who God is and what God does, by giving glory to God. I remember a particularly low point in my own spiritual journey. Standing in church, I didn't feel much like going to church, but that's what Christians do, so I did, we did. And one of the hymns for the day was precisely what I needed to hear and to sing. Words of praise and trust in the God who was bigger and is bigger than my circumstances. That, I would say, is one of the fundamental functions of worship, to reorient us from our own death-like situations, however small or however large, and to reorient us to the bigness and the glory of God. So, in conclusion, who is this passage about? It's about God. Firstly, it's about Abram, Abraham, secondly, and it's about us. It's about the God who brings life out of death as he did with Abraham and Jesus, as he has done with us and he will do with us. And God will do that with faith like a mustard seed, small, nurtured, growing. Let us pray. God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God of Jesus and Paul, God of Mary and Sarah, strengthen us, we pray, Lord, 
that enabled by your grace and contemplating your glory, especially the glory of your Son. May we trust you to bring us day by day out of death into life, out of fear into hope, and may we walk by faith in relationship with you and with one another from now until eternity. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.